Amen. We will be in John chapter 6 this morning, so just keep your place there. If you've already found it, John chapter 6. Um, Pastor Brady mentioned this earlier, but I'll introduce myself again in case you don't know me. Obviously, Pastor Mark is, is not here today. My name is Justin Smith, and I am the ministry director of youth, which means that I get to spend a lot of time with your middle schoolers, a lot of time with your high schoolers, and as a result of that, I get to hear and hear of lots of funny conversations and crazy conversations that are said either in front of me or around me when people forget that I'm in the room. And so Jackson and I were talking a few weeks ago maybe, and we were recounting a story that he heard that was told to him. And I won't mention the kid's name, but in short, this particular middle schooler was really excited to play football at recess that that week that day and unfortunately he was very discouraged when he was telling this story to Jackson because his time was cut short they were about to win the game of course every time a middle schooler has ever played football they were always about to win the game and just before they could score the final touchdown recess was called off now in the midst of telling the story the important parts to this particular kid were, I was playing football, one of my favorite games, and it was cut short. And somewhere in the middle, just said very nonchalant, very flippantly was, oh yeah, we had to go inside early before we could finish the game because there was a shooter in the area. That seemed like the most important part of that story. And so I had to hear this particular kid tell it himself. And I, I went with Jackson. We, we kind of asked and we we're trying to get more information out of him. And we said, hey, you know, tell us about that, that day that you were, you were playing football and something happened. He said, yeah, we had to go inside. We didn't even get to finish the game because there was a shooter in the area. And by the way, it was kickball, not football. That was the only thing, and come to find out later, it actually was football. But that was the only thing that that kid was concerned with, that they wanted to play football. They wanted to finish the game. They weren't able to. And in the middle, obviously, all of us would think that the middle of the story, the part that we didn't spend that much time on, seems pretty important as well. It seems like we should have spent more time talking about the situation that was happening around the school and around the area that cut short this particular game and this particular recess. Uh, but for some reason, that's not what was important to that particular kid. Um, and as we go into John 6 this morning, and the passage we're looking at isn't going to get as much, um, as much screen time, maybe. It's not going to get as much um, volume on paper as everything that's happening around it. Last week, Pastor Mark preached from verses 1 through, through 15, really 1 kind of through 13, talking about the miracle of Jesus turning those five loaves and two fish into a feast that fed all of the 5,000 plus that were there. And we're going to see that after today's events, John's going to take us from that particular miracle across to a different part, a different location um, on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is going to continue to expound upon that miracle later on. Picking up in verses 22 through almost really the rest of the chapter, Jesus goes on to say one of those famous I am statements. That, cr that crowd will come back. They want more bread. They want to be fed again. And Jesus will tell them, I am the bread of life. And so we have this push, this continuity going through chapter 6 with these few verses right in between where we talk about Jesus walking on water. And it's not that this isn't an important part of the narrative. It's not that it's not an important part of the story, but John actually spends less time 
looking at this miracle than, than Matthew does. He spends less time looking at this miracle than Mark does. He leaves out seemingly some of the details that we all know very well from children's ministry, from reading the Bible story to our kids. We kind of lump all of these narratives of Jesus walking on water together. And we pull from Matthew and Mark and John, and we think of this as one story. But we're going to see this morning that John spends a little less time here, um, though it's a obviously still a very important miracle, a very important happening, a very important announcement and pronouncement of who Jesus is. And we're going to look at this through the view of really three different ways that we need to look at Jesus. You know, the title of this morning's message is Fix Your Eyes. And when we think about that phrase, maybe we think of Hebrews 12, where we're supposed to fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. We think about that idea of of looking intently upon something, and not wavering one way or the other. And certainly that's going to be part of what we talk about this morning. But there's another phrase that comes to my mind just from the things that happen in my own family when I hear fix your eyes, because there's one particular phrase that my wife says to me and all of our children quite often, probably more so to me than anyone else, but she'll regularly tell me to fix my face. Now, that sounds pretty rude, I know that when it comes across, but what, what Jamie will say, sometimes I'm thinking about something, and I guess I have a really ugly look on my face, or maybe I'm annoyed about something, and I'll have an annoyed or perturbed look on my face. And before we have to go out in public, before we have to go out and see other people, she will remind me, hey, fix your face. It looks like something really bad has happened to you. No one's going to want to be around you if you don't fix that look that's on your face. And this morning, we're going to see that we really have to fix our eyes, not just staring intently upon Jesus and who he is, but we have to fix the way that we look at Jesus. We're going to see this morning that there are some in this particular account that look to Jesus in a very selfish way, that look to Jesus in a very short-sighted way. We'll see that in this particular account, there are some that forgot to look at Jesus at all. And hopefully by the end, we'll see how we need to look at Jesus um, as our Lord and Savior if we're, going to, uh, if we're going to be successful in our faith, if we're going to bring him glory and honor and praise, and if we are going to uh, truly follow him and submit to him um, as the God of creation. So we begin in verses 14 and 15, and really this is coming at the very end of that miracle where Jesus has fed these 5,000 plus people. Everyone was filled, they had leftovers, and now we see in verse 14, Scripture says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They were very excited to be fed. But more than that, the people there did realize that a a true miracle had occurred. Something miraculous had happened. They couldn't take those pieces of bread and those fish and feed themselves, Jesus had really done something beyond all explanation, beyond uh, anything that they could fathom. And as a result, some people said, this is the prophet. This is the one who we have been looking for. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and you don't have to flip there, you can just listen, but in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. 
See, from that point in time where Moses was giving final instructions to Israel, before he would go up on the mountain and, and pass away, they had been looking for that prophet who was to come. Later on, they would, they would describe him as the Messiah who was to come, the anointed one, the one who was going to make all things right, the one who was going to restore order and prominence and power to Israel, the one who was going to rule over Israel, but not just Israel, over all of the nations and all of the world. That's who they thought Jesus might be. They thought maybe he's the Messiah that they've long looked for. You know, people ask John the Baptist the same thing. Are you this prophet? Are you the Messiah that we're looking for? People would regularly wonder if Jesus was the prophet during his ministry here after this miracle, after he would make bold pronouncements like, I am the light of the world. They would wonder amongst themselves, is this the prophet that we've been looking for? But unfortunately, though what they said was correct, it was with wrong expectations. Some people wanted the Messiah to come just so that they could have victory over their enemies and victory over those nations that had oppressed them. At this time in Israel, Rome was in charge. And so while sometimes we read through uh, the Gospels and we read through Scripture and we think, okay, Israel here is a country, they have a king, they have their own ruling assembly, they're making their own decisions. All of these things were just because the Roman government allowed it to happen. And they could not go any further beyond what the Roman government would allow them to do, essentially, as a nation. And it's not only that Rome was in charge at this time, Israel had spent hundreds and hundreds of years underneath someone else's thumb, whether it was Rome or Greece or Persia, or Babylon, or Assyria. They could go back hundreds of years from this point in time when John was writing. This point in time where Jesus had fed these 5,000 plus people and realized we are not in control of our own destiny. We're not in control of our own country. We can't even appoint our own kings unless the Roman government will let us. We need the Messiah to come who will make all things right, who will crush our oppressors, who will throw them out and will rule over us in a way that, man, he can feed us, he can guide us, he can lead us. To the point where we look in verse 15, and he says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus knew that the people were not satisfied with him just being recognized as the prophet, the Messiah who was to come. They wanted him to be king right now. We need victory. We need political power. We're tired of these people being in charge and ruling over us. But ultimately, They wanted Jesus to be in charge. They wanted him to rule. They wanted to appoint him and and coronate him as king because they had selfish motives. They had selfish gain at mind. Chrysostom would say this, see the power of gluttony. They are no longer concerned about his breaking the Sabbath. They are no longer zealous for God. All these things are set in the background now that their bellies are full. Now he is regarded as a prophet among them and they want to set him on the royal throne as their king. See, people had all kinds of problems with Jesus up until this point where now he's feeding us for free. There's leftovers. Okay, yeah, he can be king now. It doesn't matter that he had broken Sabbath laws before. It didn't matter that he was teaching things that we didn't like. It didn't matter that we were at odds with him about these certain laws and these certain restrictions. He's fed us. Let's make him king. They had selfish motives in their mind. 
How do you look to Jesus? How do we look to Jesus? Do we look to him like he's some genie that we go and we rub the lamp and he comes out and he's going to give us our wishes? Do we look to him like he's our butler and our servant and we'll pray to him and and ask all of our laundry list of requests like we're sending in a list to Santa Claus? Do we treat God like a fair-weather friend and as long as things are going well, then hey, I can, I can spend time reading the Bible, listening to a Christian song, praying at mealtime? Or do we serve a Jesus that really in our own mind we've invented? Not a Jesus who is Messiah, not a Jesus who is the prophet, not a Jesus who is the king, but a Jesus who will feed me and a Jesus who will provide for me. And certainly God is our provider. Certainly God is the source of all good things and all blessings, but that's all they wanted to know. That's all they cared about. They wanted to serve a Jesus that doesn't make any demands of them. They wanted to serve a Jesus that fulfilled their own personal needs and selfish requests. And the thing was, Jesus was already prophet and king. He did not need these people to make him king. He did not need these people to make him Messiah. He did not need these people to necessarily make him any of these things because Jesus already was. He already is the prophet, the priest, and king that they were looking for. But they were too short-sighted, they were too selfish, and they couldn't see it. He didn't come like they expected. He didn't come acting in a way that they thought. And instead, they wanted to forcibly make him king so they could have their needs met. So what does Jesus do? It says that perceiving, he knew this was about to happen. He knew they wanted to make him king. He knew that they wanted to probably parade him to Jerusalem and put him on the throne right then and combat his enemies and their enemies. And perceiving that, it says that Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus leaves the disciples and goes to the mountain. And if we borrow from Matthew's account and Mark's account, it also tells us that while he was on the mountain, not only was he getting away from these people that were trying to make him king, but he went and spent time alone in prayer. And he told the disciples, get in the boat on to the next destination. And that's where we pick up in this next verse, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, And started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples, for whatever reason, had waited a little while after Jesus gave them the instructions. Because it says now it's dark and I guess they were still waiting around on the shore and Jesus wasn't there. He hadn't come yet. But finally they get in the boat and they embark on their journey. We see Jesus' instructions to go not here in John, but in in Matthew and Mark. Now, this wasn't a normal trip across the sea. We see in the next verse, the sea became rough in verse 18 because a strong wind was blowing. What should have taken the disciples probably a few hours from where they set off, where the feeding of the 5,000 traditionally happened, until where they were going as they were setting sail for Capernaum in that particular area, it should have taken them a few hours rowing across the sea. But again, to borrow from Matthew and, and Mark and their account, this would have been nine hours later that the disciples are still rowing. They're still going. They've been blown off course somewhat, and they're still trying to get to the other side. 
Not only that, but on the way, it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So they had been working effortlessly. Not really. It was, it was a, quite a bit of effort that they were putting in, trying to get from one place to the other, and they just could not make it. They couldn't get across the sea. They couldn't get where they were going. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking by, and they were frightened. They were scared by Jesus. Why, why would that have been such a scary thing for them? Why would that have been such a scary sight to see Jesus walking up in the middle of this raging wind on the sea? Well, one reason is they were focused on their work. They weren't expecting to see Jesus walking. They weren't expecting to see Jesus out in the middle of the ocean with them where they were struggling so much to get to the other side. Again, we see in the other Gospels that Mark and Matthew say they thought that they were seeing a ghost, that they were seeing a spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen someone walk on water. And so when we look at the disciples and say, well, that seems like a ridiculous thing to think. I can think of about half a dozen things that would have gone through my mind before I thought, oh, there's Jesus walking on water. I would have thought I was going crazy. I would have thought that I was delusional. I'd worked myself into some sort of paranoia. Maybe a ghost seems to make sense at that point. Who knows? But for whatever reason, they were scared. They didn't expect to see Jesus. Not only do we have to look at Jesus with proper motives, but we have to look for Jesus when we least expect him. We should expect Jesus' presence in every trial. You know, if you look through this particular account, the disciples, it's not recorded that they pray, that they call out for God, that they ask for help at all. They just think by brute force, they're going to beat this wind and make it to the other side. They're trying as hard as they possibly can. Ulrich Zingli would say this, Christ is nowhere more present than when we are destitute of any human help. For whenever they were placed in such grave danger, the longed-for Christ is present. They needed to stop working and start looking for help from God because Jesus was there. Jesus was there to help them. Jesus was there to provide for them. Um, And in our own lives, sometimes we get to working so frantically and we think, well, I don't want to bother God with this. And we put our head down and we go. And we put our head down and we work. And we put our head down and we make no progress. The wheels are spinning, but we're just digging that rut deeper and deeper and deeper. We need to stop working and start start looking. Sometimes we need to know when a situation is beyond us. Now, this isn't an excuse to sit around and do nothing and say, well, if God wants this particular outcome, if he wants this thing to happen, he'll just have to do it. And I'll be on the couch waiting for him to get it done. No, that's not an excuse not to do any work. But we have to understand that there are times that there's no way that we can do things on our own. Really, we should say all the time, we can't do things on our own. We cannot accomplish anything on our own. And we need to go out in the power of God. We need to rely on him. We need to look for him. And we should expect Jesus to show up, not on our timetable, but we should expect Jesus to show up when he's ready and understand that he is always there. He is an ever-present help in our trouble. 
We have to cling to God in our trials. Now, this was a trial. Nine hours later, they're still going. They're still rowing, and they're off course. They're in the middle of the sea with, with really no end in sight. Zwingli would again would say, let us bear every trial patiently, conquering them by faith in Christ. And even if the waves of dangerous trials should crash down on us from every side, let us not doubt that Christ will save us, even if he seems absent or slow to come. Jesus wasn't absent. The disciples were looking for him on the shore. They waited around to see maybe if he would show up. But then when they set out, they completely took their eyes off Jesus. They completely took their eyes off God, and they tried to do things on their own. We can't do that. We need to expect Jesus to show up. We need to expect Jesus to work. We need to expect Jesus to be there. And in the midst of these trials, in the midst of our tests, we wait patiently, we cling to him, and we expect him to to lead us through. And so the disciples were scared when they see Jesus walk up. But Jesus' mere presence doesn't put them at ease. When he walks by, he's afraid, but seeing him was not enough for their fear to subside. The Titanic, you know, as we all know, was a, a monstrous ship, and, and over 100 years ago it set sail from England to America, hidden iceberg, and hours later would, would sink. And many people die, there are many casualties. And um, as many of you may know, there was one boat in the area that night that actually saw the Titanic. And as people were being lowered in lifeboats from the ships, they could see a boat on the horizon. The SS Californian was something like 17 to 20 miles away. And when the Titanic reached out and they sent their SOS to any ship in the area, well, that particular ship had turned off their communications for the night. Simply seeing that ship on the horizon didn't save people. Hundreds of more people would have been saved if they had responded to the call and come near, if they would have responded to the call and come to help. The people being lowered could have seen that ship in the distance, but merely seeing that ship provided no relief, provided no salvation for those people. More than just seeing Jesus, he comes up and announces himself. Jesus announces, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, one thing, and, and not to delve off into the Greek too much, but if you look at that particular phrase, it is I, that same phrasing all throughout John is translated many times as I am. We have those seven great I am statements all throughout John, where he says later in chapter six, I am the bread of life. When he says, I am the light of the world. When he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the true vine, right? And then he says it many other times. But it's supposed to make us think and, and draw our mind back to this idea in Exodus chapter three, when Moses is at the burning bush and God is sending him to uh, Pharaoh, sending him to redeem the people of Israel. And Moses says, well, God, what if they ask who sent me? What if they ask what your name is? And God says, I am that I am. He says, this is my name. I am. Jesus will say, before Abraham was, I am. And here he is walking on water, and he comes up to him and says, it is I. I am. Do not be afraid. 
Jesus has power and authority over his creation. And here he is announcing his deity. Whether we translate that as it is I or I am, he's still walking on water. He's still showing his power and authority over his creation. He's still breaking the laws of physics that we can't by walking on water instead of sinking. But we have to understand that his presence only brings peace if we recognize him as Lord and Savior. See, there's another passage in John, much later in John chapter 18, where he uses this same phrase. The angry mob comes to arrest him. Judas comes to betray him. And they ask, hey, are you Jesus? And he answers the same way. In the ESV, it's translated, I am he, but it's still that same phrase, I am. And what do the people do that come to arrest him? They fall down in fear. See, there are only two options. There are only two responses to Jesus announcing himself to us. There are only two ways that we can go. To the disciples, he says, do not be afraid. But to the angry mob, they fall down in fear. So where do we fall? We have to look to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that may sound like, you know, oh yeah, great. We hear that every Sunday. But if we don't know Jesus as Lord, if we don't know Jesus as Savior, then our fear doesn't go away when he comes near. Our fear doesn't go away when he announces his presence. Where do we fall? Do we fear Jesus in a biblical sense where we stand in awe of who he is? Where we recognize him as Lord over all creation? Where we submit ourselves to him as Savior? Or are we terrified at the punishment that we're under? When Jesus draws near, do we understand our own failure? The disciples couldn't get across the sea by themselves. They had failed to accomplish that. And they would continue to fail to accomplish that until Jesus drew near, said, don't be afraid. He gets in the boat and immediately they're at their destination. Do we understand that no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do in and of ourselves, that ultimately we will fail to meet God's standards. We will fail to meet his requirements. We will fail to please God and be righteous in our own right. We will fail. And if we don't fall on Jesus' feet, if we don't submit to him, if we don't run to him in faith, then we will continue to fail not just to accomplish a goal, but ultimately to accomplish a relationship with him. See, we cannot do that on our own. We cannot decide one day that I'm going to know God. We cannot decide one day that I'm going to sneak into heaven or I'm going to make things right because we can't. Praise God that Jesus came and when we said, well, we can't, he can. And he took our sin that we deserve to die for. He took our punishment that we deserve. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to be beaten. We deserve to be under God's wrath. And instead, Jesus took that upon himself as our Savior, as our Messiah. We can only find salvation in him. So we have to ask ourselves, where do we fall this morning? Do we look at Jesus as Lord and Savior? Or do we forget to look at Jesus at all? 
Do we look at Jesus as Lord and Savior? Or do we look at him as someone that is just going to provide for my wants and my desires? See, we can have selfish motives. And maybe we do. Maybe our prayers are selfish. And we only go to God when we need something. We only go to God when, when I'm sick and I want to be better. We only go to God when I'm poor and I want to be rich. We only go to God when we want something to happen good in our lives. And we don't serve him any other time. Is that you this morning? Are you approaching your relationship with God in a superficial and selfish way? Maybe you're not looking for him at all. And you need to look for Jesus when you least expect it. Maybe you need to stop thrashing against the waves this morning. Maybe you need to stop trying to get things done on your own and realize, I can't. Maybe you need to rely more on Jesus than your own earthly power. Maybe you need to expect trials to come and expect Jesus to be there with you in those trials. You know, one question that I've had as I was reading through this particular passage this week was why does John spend so little time talking about Jesus walking on water? Why does he not give all the details like Matthew does and all the details that Mark does? And certainly I think for one reason it's, it's to put the focus on Jesus as I am the bread of life. But I think also at the same time it's to put the focus on the presence of Jesus. See, when Jesus is present, our problems don't have to be described in great detail because we know God is there. When Jesus is present, the problems that I'm facing don't have to be described and don't have to be painstakingly laid out because we know God is there. And when we focus on him, when we set our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus, every problem that I have, every trial that I face is nothing. It is nothing in the presence of our Savior. It is nothing in the presence of our God. Are you looking to him that way this morning? Are you fixing your eyes so closely on Jesus that your trials are seemingly nothing? Now, it doesn't mean that we're not facing them. It doesn't mean that we aren't going through them. But they pale in comparison to the presence of our Savior. As our musicians come up this morning, I just want to leave you with, with that challenge. I want to challenge you to fix your eyes. Lock your eyes on Jesus, but do it the correct way. Fix your eyes on Jesus, but do it in a way that is worthy of his honor and glory and power. Not in selfish and superficial ways, not in ways that only go to him when we're in trouble, but in a way that recognizes Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior. He is there in every trial. He is there in every tribulation. He's there in every circumstance. Let's treat our relationship with Jesus like that. Let's go to him all the time. 
instead of ignoring him or fixing our eyes elsewhere. So I don't know how you need to respond this morning, but I just want to lead us in a word of prayer. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to change the way that you're looking at Jesus. Maybe you need to make him your Lord and Savior this morning. Maybe you've been thrashing about in your own life, not getting anywhere. And this morning's the time that you need to realize it's time to let go. It's time to stop working. And it's time to trust and rely on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you, God, for for helping me to realize this week how much I need to set my eyes on you. Lord, we are a busy people. And in the midst of our circumstances, it's easy to take our eyes off of you. It's easy to take our focus off of you and then only look up when we're in trouble and only look to you when when we're in great need. And God, we praise you for, for providing for us in those needs, but help us to look to you all the time. Help us to worship you all the time. Not just when we're in want, not just when we have our own selfish desires. Lord, change our hearts. Change my heart this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to respond um, appropriately. You would help us to respond in a way that brings you praise. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.